Brandeis University in quarantine, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today, as usual, your hosts are me, John Plotz, and my brilliant colleague and friend, Elizabeth Ferry. And our topic today is the long history of uh, the racialization of policing in the United States. Uh, and so one of our guests today is also here at Quarantined Brandeis, uh, Dan Kreider, professor of politics and an expert on the racial politics of policing in America. His publications include a 2000 book, Divided Arsenal, Race and the American State During World War II. And he has active research projects ongoing in this topic that I think we'll probably hear about today. So Dan, welcome. It's really great to have you. And our other guest, uh, David Cunningham, Chair of Sociology at Washington University of St. Louis, taught at Brandeis for many years. Um, so he's a virtual Brandeisian, I guess. Um, I'm a huge fan, for example, of his 2012. Virtual Brandeisian. Virtually virtual. a virtual Brandeisian, yeah. And a virtuous one to boot. I'm a huge fan of his 2012 Clansville, USA, The Rise and Fall of the Civil Rights Era Ku Klux Klan. And his ongoing research includes the organization and enforcement of segregation under Jim Crow, enduring legacies of racist violence, policing of organized white supremacy, and also, and I think this is germane for our attempt to establish a bridge over 50 years, he's also interested in the recent wave of conflicts around Confederate monuments and other sites of contested memory. So David, welcome back to Brandeis. <laughs> So you guys, uh, we asked you here to explore this you know, massive topic at a moment, obviously, of upheaval and a moment that will have already changed between the time that we're taping this conversation in early June and when it comes on the air. So um, let me just ask you like an easy question to start off. Let's talk about the origins of police and police, uh, police forces and policing in the United States. Is there a distinctly American story, one that's based in race and slavery, or is it a story that's, you know, the rise of police and policing in the industrialized first world? So, yeah. I see Dan pointing at Dave, so. <laughs> I would say that in, in many ways, this is a distinctly American story, but with overlap to other colonial states and, and, and various nations in that sense. I think the two main models that lead to the origins of policing in the U.S. In the North, we tend to see policing as emerging as pseudo-organized militias, in effect. So moving out of a more civic model where policing was community-based in a, in a literal sense and didn't have necessarily direct state capacity. It was an effort to kind of rein in that impetus and tie it directly to the state. Um, and in the South, that same impetus was organized around enslavement. And so the idea of the slave patrols leading into the origins of policing regionally, it was certainly true. And so, uh, especially in the South, but also in the North, we do see this direct relationship between race and racial control and the very origins of policing in the U.S. Cool. Um, Dan, is there anything you'd like to add to that or? I think that's quite right. And I guess I would also just scale back even further to note that our constitutional system um, said nothing about policing and it basically allowed uh, our kind of infinite number of political localities to um, invent appropriate modes of social control that fit local political economies. So we really have a, an extraordinary patchwork of decentralized 
local stories um, that are um, kind of reflective of uh, lo local social formation. So this is a country that is pretty much on the extreme end of decentralized policing. And what it's allowed for is a great deal of variation and distinctiveness in terms of local police forces um, who are all, I think, attempting to exert social control over what turned out to be a kind of rapacious capitalism um, that created really deep structures of inequality. Um, and how localities uh, worked out that problem over the decades are, are very distinctive, I think. So, you know, back when I was a graduate student, back when I had hair, I worked a lot on 19th century uh, labor protests. And the guys that I worked on, the chartists, and I say the guys advisedly, they had a kind of class-based account of policing. Like they saw police as very distinctly you know, the tool of the upper class to control working class, like large scale unruliness. Is that, um, I mean, I guess the question is something like, you know, Dave, I take you, you, you made a point about distinguishing the North and the South. Is the distinction between the North and the South as simple as that in the North, you get that kind of class-based policing and in the South, you get race-based policing or is the decentralization you're describing mean it's a more complicated picture than that? I mean, I might say there, there's some of that character, but in a lot of ways, it's more complicated by a couple of things going on in the US. And one of them is gonna be the pervasive, entrenched, and, and still obviously present reality of racial residential segregation in Northern, especially urban areas, um, and having an all white police force in most cases. And that can become a complicated story as we move into the 20th century. And I know Dan knows a lot about that kind of shift. But when you have an all-white police force and you have strongly segregated neighborhoods, you certainly, um, one of the things that attenuates against just thinking about class is that originally, and again, there was a move by mid-century in the 20th century away from this, but originally police tended to be from the neighborhoods that they policed. Um, and the exception to that would be African-American neighborhoods. Um, and so that would be the one space where you'd see basically policing by outsiders. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if there would have been a baseline kind of class distinction, what you often saw were working class cops, in effect, uh, policing working class white neighborhoods as insiders, um, but extending that policing also to segregated black neighborhoods in ways where they were in effect occupying those neighborhoods in ways that we see direct parallels to today. I mean, um, I do think that the 60s are a touchstone. They're, um, they contain the kind of the, the most recent major wave of urban unrest slash rebellion and the most recent major wave of kind of police violence and police rioting. And so for me, it's just interesting to look back at the late 60s and to look back at the way that the federal government in particular tried to understand them. I've had another look at the Kerner Commission report um, that was uh, launched in 1967. And I think what strikes me actually are the number of really significant differences between that phase of social conflict and the current one. And so, um, but, but again, you know, we don't see these kinds of major waves very often in American political history. What we're seeing now is, um, you know, distinctive in the sense that we're seeing simultaneous demonstrations across scores of American cities, maybe even hundreds of American cities, large and small, yeah. 
that's not what we saw in the 1960s. They're relatively peaceful um, and nonviolent. They are political demonstrations. They tend not to be creating a great deal of property damage, which was so characteristic of um, the social conflict in the late 1960s. As many people have pointed out, they also include uh, much more mixed populations in terms of race and ethnicity, that these are uh, multiracial crowds, um, and they have political motives and political claims and political concrete demands. And to me, they are much more sophisticated um, as political uh, organizations. And so, um, so I'm struck by how sophisticated they are politically and uh, the, the promise that that carries for actual real reform. I wonder if it's, it seems also that, and this is just my own impression and not, not a scholarly observation, but, but it seems not only that the, that the protests are more widespread and more multiracial, but they're also protests in places that are almost entirely white about Black Lives Matter, right? And that seems very different, right? That, um, I mean, you can imagine you can see at least some moments within the 60s, you know, where there are kind of cross-racial um, alliances, um, even if those don't, you know, break down because probably because white people, when it really comes, push comes to shove, they, they back off, right? Or they don't follow through. Um, but I don't know that you saw, or it seems like you didn't see, you know, rural, you know, California towns and, you know, little, um, you know, Lexington, Massachusetts and other places like that having, having a lot of protests. So that seems very, very different. Yeah, the, the pervasiveness of these across these kinds of communities, I find really amazing. And I appreciate Dan mentioning it that way as well, because it's, it's heartening to see on the one hand, but really jarring. You know, there, there are places, and I don't need to name the specific ones, but St. Louis is certainly an area where uh, the city is heavily African-American. The counties have grown up to basically dwarf the city uh, in population. So the metro St. Louis area, the city is probably about 10% of the overall population. So it's really dwarfed by the surrounding suburbs and kind of more rural exurbs beyond that. Um, but some of those exurban areas are, you know, really seen, you know, these are deep red areas and really seen as, as, as Trump country in a lot of ways. Uh, white flight would be a simple way to kind of think about why they've grown so quickly. And, you know, you really see them as, as conservative, almost uh, hegemonically white areas. And, you know, just, just two days ago, there was a protest out in the county there, and there were two or 3,000 people there. A lot of the organizers had come from the city, um, but the, the crowd was largely white, but not sort of white centrist liberal. It was kind of white, what you'd see as, as conservative. And so the pervasiveness is, is, of this is really, really incredible. Well, so what, what do you guys, how do you guys interpret that? Like, uh, you know, I mean, is that, does that have to do with media access to media that allows people to see stories that aren't direct impact on their lives, but nonetheless sort of speak to their conception of what the country should be doing? Is it, I, I don't know, what, you know, what's, what's... Everyone's really bored of staying inside. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I think, gosh, it's so, it's such a complicated phenomenon. 
um, that, and we're really sort of at the front end of it, I think. So I'm really uh, hesitant to to draw too many conclusions about it. But I, but I guess I do think that um, that the movement for Black Lives over the last um, six seven years has made a substantial progress in um, focusing attention on this issue and and have done so in a kind of consistent and and um, consistent and coherent way. The other thing is that, um, you know, we've simply not improved very much of the chronic problem of police violence. And so these incidents are recurring in almost a regular fashion. And this last one with, with, with um, George Floyd was so egregious and so cruel and so banal and so, um, so visually uh, degrading that I think it had um, a mobilizing effect independent of, of all the other factors. And then the last thing I would point to is I do think there is a really major role that Trump has played in kind of creating the conditions um, that have brought this forth on, on, on sort of both sides of the coin. That is in uh, essentially rolling back Obama era Department of Justice oversight um, on the one hand in using inflammatory rhetoric and hateful rhetoric in ways that have made um, racial hatred more permissible, um, but also in kind of stoking, I think, um, a counter movement among black Americans and sympathetic white Americans to, um, to demand some decent fairness in the way that police um, deal with minorities in American cities. David, I'm not sure what you think about this. I I would certainly agree with what you're saying about the the Trump effect in this case, and you know I've always seen it as um, we think about Trump as a polarizing figure, literally when we think about the electorate, and that's usually what we think of as people who might have been closer to the center have moved you know uh, sharply rightward. Um, but the other thing that's happened as part of that dynamic is it's taken away. Uh, kind of the pressure valve of the middle. You know, one could imagine in almost any other time, if we have even the exceptionally degrading event, as you mentioned, with, with the George Floyd killing, um, to have a national leader step in and basically chart a middle path, like to condemn the act and to say something that might be palatable to a broad section of the middle, that would create a whole different dynamic here. And when we in the absence of that, basically everyone has to take a position. You know, this is not the sort of event where you can kind of sit back and be neutral. And basically Trump's taken away the entire middle ground. You're either going to uh, be unwilling to say that this is problematic, or you're going to be saying Black Lives Matter, which is something that a lot of these people probably would not be saying, given a more centrist alternative. It really comes down to local municipalities and local leaders trying to rein in police. Mm -hmm. And what we see locally that, that is not as present when you think of national level levers are the, the strength of police unions, which are just really dominate um, local politics in a lot of places. The New York Times just yesterday had a big front page story about, about the power of police unions. St. Louis, it's really amazing where the, the the police union is basically, uh, it's become a mouthpiece for uh, an exaggerated Trump-like rhetoric in every sort of fashion, to the extent to which there is a parallel police union called the Ethical Society of Police 
that largely represents African-American officers in the city. You know, it's not explicitly racialized, but basically they're very clear that they support civil rights and police acting in a way that preserves civil rights. And so- Are they a union see, too, David? Are you, are you saying they're not? Are, yeah. So you can so join are, either union, depending on- Join one or the other. Um, I guess presumably you could join both, but they're really oppositional to each other. And I just recommend, you know, follow these two groups on Twitter because they go after each other. The Ethical Society will come flat out and say that the police union is is racist in, in St. Louis, and they'll have all this evidence to back that up. And um, so not only are these dual unions, they're explicitly and publicly in opposition to each other. Um, but the issue is that the main longstanding union here has a lot of power and influence in, in a lobbying sense and in a, in a pressure sense over uh, local political leaders. And so when you don't have a Department of Justice who can kind of come in and create a counterbalance, it's really difficult to rein in the police in the presence of the unions. And you can almost see yeah. people's minds changing in real time. And, and I see this in, in some white male athletes like Drew Brees or Joey Votto, a baseball player. Right, yeah. the NFL is an interesting yeah. place to look for sure. Well, can I connect that to the point that David, you were making about the whiteness of many of the crowds? And, and one thing that really struck me, I think I saw this in 538, but I've also seen it reported in the New York Times, is the shift in racial attitudes among white Democrats. Like which, and I'm not sure whether we understand that as formerly racist white racist whites who used to vote for the Democratic Party now going to the Republican Party. But even in the last decade, it, the numbers of white Democrats who would agree with a statement like the justice system in America is systematically biased against African Americans has gone from like 50% to 85%. And and I guess that's goes to my question about realignment, like where I feel like there's a, both an optimistic and a cynical view of that kind of realignment. Like Thomas Piketty's latest book gives us kind of the cynical view, which is to say that the Democratic Party is like now the Brahmin educated party. And so that's the realignment that reflects economic interests underneath. But maybe a more optimistic view would be like, David, what you were describing of and, and your point about small town demonstrations, Elizabeth, would be like, well, actually, lots of white Americans are now understanding systemic racism as part of their problem, like something they want to solve. Well, or they're, they think they're understanding it this week. Anyways, <laughs> I'm hesitant to see what this is. No. But though, though, Elizabeth, those poll numbers are more sustained than that. I mean, you're right. I totally agree with about going out. You're right. Standing on a street corner is one thing. But I, I do. But it does feel like the poll numbers are meaningful in terms of what Democrats think they're supporting. Yeah, yeah and I, you know, I, I feel like this next period that we're gonna enter is gonna be hugely important. I mean, in part, it's gonna be electorally important as we move towards November, certainly. And so those poll numbers could uh, suggest some movement in the middle. Um, but, you know, in terms of the rhetoric that we're hearing now in unexpected places, what that will actually look like when it develops. I mean, it's one thing that I think the, this is entirely not systematic, but it seems to me that the uh, the proportion of the population willing to invoke the term systemic racism has like drastically increased over the last few weeks. Yes. And yeah, right. Um, you know, once we get to a point where invoking that is not solely about expressing opposition or largely about expressing opposition to kind of public degrading violence against people of color 
but actually is about the addressing the systemic part of that, which runs much deeper. And, you know, the kind of community I mentioned earlier, uh, pretty quickly you can run a line from police violence to understanding why the population of their community increased fivefold over a decade as it aligned with school desegregation policies and various things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that it won't take that long for people to have to, if they're going to continue with the shift in attitudes, really reckon with things that they've seen as really sensible decisions that, that they and people like them have made. And, and that have benefited them at the expense of other people. Exactly. And so I think that's a very different thing to get an acknowledgement and a reckoning with that than expressing opposition to these acts of police violence. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether it can move to that next step. But that seems to me to be the real key if we're thinking systemically about change. Yeah. Well, Duke, can I ask you to talk a little bit? I mean, if if it seems germane, you, you know, you've been working in Missouri, so that's an interesting place to be working on Confederate monuments and sites of contested memory. So, do you do you have a report there? Is that a is that kind of a polarized discussion, or do you see movement that you wouldn't expect to see? Or yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question in the sense, you know, Missouri is a border state. It has a very complicated orientation to the Civil War. Um, so it's it, it was a slave state, but it uh, formally was on the side of the Union. But really, it was in practice was the, the place where there were uh, hundreds of guerrilla skirmishes because there were so many people on both sides of the issue. Um, St. Louis is a real outlier in that case. It was kind of the Union stronghold, the largest Union uh, Armory, I'm not sure, certainly west of the Mississippi, but I, I'm not sure how much beyond that hmm. um, was in St. Louis, and it was sort of seen as, as the uh, most strongly Unionist space uh, in Missouri. So being where I'm sitting is, is not quite representative, but I will say that there was a 31-foot-tall Confederate monument about a mile from my house in Forest Park, which is the large park about the size of Central Park in St. Louis. Um, that was taken down in 2017. Um, it, it was an interesting moment in the sense that there really wasn't, uh, there, there were, it took about eight months of calls back and forth, and there were a set of protests and counter-protests around it. But the, uh, and it's a more complicated story, but the upshot of it is that the monument was removed um, and it very quickly evaporated from public discourse. And actually some colleagues of, of mine and I have a paper coming out later this year about how the sort of the form of uh, a recontextualization of Confederate objects shapes the degree to which it kind of impacts discourse in those communities afterwards. And St. Louis is kind of a, a canonical case of just the pure removal of an object creating kind of a vacuum uh, in terms of discussing what it meant for it to be there for over 100 years in that community. Um, hmm. And so St. Louis has been very good at, uh, at sort of moving, as they would see, moving past this issue and not really reckoning with the fact of why it was put up and why it was defended in past decades and all. Yeah, it's such a complex question. I mean, another very striking set of images from these events to me is to see so many examples of police officers taking a knee themselves, which is just really unimaginable to me even 12 months ago. 
And so I do think there is now, and, and, and on the other hand, other police officers apparently resigning in protest in the face of certain kinds of indictments. There seems to be a little bit more space for police officers to act um, with agency right now themselves. That's, that, in other words, kind of breaking apart that blue line and allowing for individual preferences to reveal themselves. I, I don't know the answer to your question. I, I've done research in the longer term that shows to me that, um, demonstrates to me anyway, that, that the appointment of black police historically was often a very instrumental decision made by city officials, white city officials, to basically improve the efficiency of local policing in black neighborhoods. And so, um, so it's, a, it's a kind of a double-edged story of the advancement of individual black um, men usually to positions of real prestige and respect, but also it's clearly an instrumental decision to improve um, methods of social control in big cities um, mm -hmm. because white cops simply weren't effective in creating relationships that produce valuable information and creating the kind of minimal amount of trust that police require to police crime and so on. So I guess, um, I guess I would fall back on, on the observation that, that different police forces really vary in this regard, depending on local, sort of local conditions and local practices. And one other really major difference to me from uh, the 1960s to today is now the presence of a, really a whole legion of black local officials who have real power in cities and who have real power in city councils. And that's also something that really wasn't common in, in, the, in the late 60s yet. So um, it's, it's another factor that I think should lead us to be more optimistic about the role that Black officials are going to play going forward. When we think about police in this way, too, we think about the kind of system that surrounds them as well. If we think about how the, the broader criminal justice or legal system works in these places, you see how the culture of the police is really deeply intertwined in these ways. And just to, you know, another story that relates to the area that I'm sitting right now that seemed really telling is, well, we had the, the uh, police union dynamic I described earlier here, where we have these dual unions. Uh, St. Louis was also part of the movement from 2018 to elect predominantly women of color, predominantly black women into uh, really influential city attorney positions. And exactly, and the analog here would be Kimberly Gardner, who was elected in St. Louis here. And, and then Wesley Bell, who was elected in the county. And so Wesley Bell defeated Bob McCullough. And why people remember Bob McCullough was he was the attorney involved in all of the grand jury proceedings around Ferguson and the murder of Michael Brown. And so he had an absolutely notorious reputation nationally as well as in this area. He also has a very complicated personal story where his father was had been a longtime cop in St. Louis and was killed on duty while being on duty. So he had this family story that was really about thinking about police violence from the other side as it related to his father. So it was a it was a really complicated story, but Wesley Bell, through amazing organizing efforts, predominantly in the African-American community, defeats him in 2018. What we see under that, though, is his office of almost entirely white attorneys in his office leave the current county union and join the 
predominantly white St. Louis City police union that I mentioned earlier after Wesley Bell comes in. And so you see this idea of what is the culture of this office? Who do they see as representing them and who do they see themselves as representing? And then who do they want to be their protectors when something happens? And so I feel like that, while not a police story, is really important because we see this whole interconnected web of and these levers of power, the police being one of them, but we also see how involved and complicated it becomes um, and how entrenched a culture can be even when individual personnel can shift in and out of these things. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a great point to, to maybe pivot to recallable books because that really helps us see you know, how important it is to pan back out from any one sort of shard at the moment. I uh, appreciate that. So um, can I ask you guys, uh, you know, Recallable Books is the segment in our show where we talk about other things that, you know, if this is the sort of conversation you like to hear, what are the books that you would want to read that would allow you to sort of continue to think this through? Um, so I don't know, David, do you want to start us off? Sure. I can start because I think it follows pretty closely to the, the point that I was just making. Um, and the, the historian at Harvard, Walter Johnson, just released a book about a month ago called The Broken Heart of America. It's very much about St. Louis. The subtitle is St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. But what Johnson really does is he uses St. Louis as a particular place where these lines that we see all over the country, especially in urban areas all over the country, are very, maybe exceptionally starkly drawn. So St. Louis becomes really a, a, a case that's emblematic of these dynamics that we see everywhere. Um, but what I love about this book and what he does really effectively is he tells a story and the police are not surprisingly really primary actors within the story, but he tells a story that is truly systemic where he begins in the 18th century and moves through uh, the history of St. Louis in a way where to understand the police or to understand the courts or any institution that we might pull out of here, what you realize is that it's all of this part of this broader constellation and you can't isolate one aspect of it and say we're explaining what's going on. And so this book really wonderfully kind of builds that galaxy in a way that you see that interconnectedness. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan? What? Well, for me, I guess my, my two ideas also deal with the problem of the broken heart of America, but in a different way. And I go back to James Baldwin and The Fire Next Time in the first essay in The Fire Next Time we as social scientists and historians are so analytically oriented and we want to understand causes and effects. But, but Baldwin, I think, has always been to me someone who, even in the moment, which must have been so deeply hostile in ways we can't imagine, was able somehow to talk about, use words to talk about the humanity of, um, of Americans and African-Americans in particular and the broken heart of this nation um, in a way that I think is worth um, revisiting. And by extension, Tanishi Coates, um, his uh, book, um, gosh, the title is now escaping. Between the me. World and May. Exactly. Is a, is a kind of updated version, that takes the similar kind of essay form that he wrote for his son in this case. I, those two seem to me to be um, really irreplaceable perspectives on remembering what this is really all about. That's great. 
Well, thank you guys so much. You've given us a, a ton to think about. I, I was so convinced we were going to solve the problem of uh, race and American policing in, in, uh, in this hour, but yeah. uh, I guess we have to push it over. Maybe, maybe when we have you guys back, we can come back for the solution, you know? So uh, Elizabeth, any thought, any parting thoughts here or? Uh... Uh, no, but uh, just to thank both uh, David and Dan for, for joining us and, and to say that uh, we hope to have a sequel on global policing with um, anthropologist Hayal Akarsu and that will be coming up in the future as well. It's been a pleasure, thank you. Great, so I will just say that Recall This Book is hosted today and always by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing by Claire Ogden and website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. And we always wanna hear from you with your comments, criticisms or suggestions for future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's show or if you didn't, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Um, you might want to check out other conversations we've had over the last few weeks, including with Ben Fountain, who also talked about James Baldwin, with Samuel Delaney, Zadie Smith, and uh, the science fiction novelist Shishen Liu. So thank you so much, David and Dan, and thank you all for listening.